What's going on, Token fam? Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to officially welcome you to season five of Token Confessions. Now, listen, we wouldn't be doing this and we wouldn't be able to make it uh, three years now without the support of you all, especially our patrons. So I really want to thank you all for supporting us, following us and bearing with us during this break. Um, I had to crunch down. We had life transitions and I had to finish up this work, this school, and we're almost there. And actually today we got a treat for you because I'm going to be interviewing Cedric based on some topics uh, from my dissertation. And so again, we're going to talk about trauma. It may open up some wounds for you. So we're actually going to do this interview in two parts. And I hope that you all will enjoy this conversation between uh, myself and Cedric based on Cedric's life. And I promise you, if you're new to the channel, you're going to get to know my story over the next couple of weeks. So thank you for listening and enjoy today's podcast. Well, 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 friends, it's your boys, Sanchez and Cedric, back on the mic. And today, we are kicking off a new series, and we're going to reintroduce ourselves because a lot of you have joined this journey over the last three years with us, and we thank you so much for partnering mm -hmm. with us. Um, but some of y'all might not know the context of where this podcast comes from, where it began, and our experiences. And so this is going to be an opportunity for y'all to get to know us. And so... We had an idea a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was in dissertation mode, and I was like, you know, said I want to interview you, and uh, he was like, yeah, man, let's do it, let's do it. But you know, life happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, yeah, work life balance. Yep, you went to Scotland mm -hmm, for Christmas. Yep, yep, yep. You know, you, you you've been killing it. You're still cooking all these gourmet meals. Thank you, thank you. You know, and so so today I'm basically gonna give you guys and girls. Uh, some insights to some of the questions that were asked in my dissertation. And so this is, yes, sure, it's it's my podcast with Cedric. So it's, a, it's not a shameless plug. It, it is going to be what it is. And right. so, um, so I'm going to interview Cedric and somewhat myself, and we're going to have a conversation based on some of the questions that <clears throat> I asked in my dissertation. And so for those of you who don't know, like Token Confessions exists, um, to basically speak about our experiences working within predominantly white organizations and institutions. And so I was like, man, like... Just being black men in predominantly white spaces in general, but specifically white, white evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, man, like, <clears throat> you know, I kind of got thrown into this doctoral program and I was like, man, what could I write about? And I was like, uh, uh, duh. Of course. <laughs> Token <laughs> confessions because... That's been my life, and my journey is to help other people navigate their own uh, paths that they feel like they, they are called to. And, trauma. And navigate the trauma. And so <laughs> what better way than to come up with this complex thesis uh, called Understanding Intergenerational Trauma and Its Effects on Black Leaders Working Within Predominantly White Organizations. And so it's a mouthful. I can't wait to see the president's face when he announces this, when I graduate <laughs> on, on May 14th. I cannot wait. I will be watching. Um, I will be watching that on Zoom if yes, I have to. Yes, yes. Just so, for that part. So it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. Um I'm actually I just submitted it and so I don't know when this podcast will be released, but um it's been submitted. I actually defend on March 4th, which is coming up next Friday. Yeah. Um which side note, this is why there's a big part of the reason why there's been a break in the action as well. So this man correct. you know can get his paper <clears> done. 
paper, man. We're talking right. 330 pages of blood, sweat, tears, and everything else to go in. But all that to say is, you know, it only speaks to my journey over the last particularly three and a half years of focusing on the topics of trauma, trying to better assess like how I'm triggered, particularly working with uh, white leaders and then navigating my own healing journey. And so um, as you have probably noticed throughout the podcast, you know, it kind of transitions from talking about tokenism yeah. um, and our experiences to moving towards anti-racism and really trying to move the needle forward in the conversation and hopefully um, save some people from unnecessary trauma. But <laughs> listen, but for some people, you know, like I realized this week, I was talking to a friend, like, you know, sometimes like you have to let people go through the cycle. I think DC Talk had a song that talked about this. I never listened to DC Talk. Some people gotta learn the hard way. <laughs> I guess I'm the type of guy who has to find out for myself. I had to learn the hard way. Father, I'm on my knees and I'm crying for help. I'm going to add some chords to that, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I just got transported back to a youth conference in 1994. Yes, I just dated myself. 94. I was five years old. I was uh, 16. 16? Yeah, I was 16. It doesn't feel like we're that much. That's because I age like fine wine and black do. don't crack. You do, you do, you do. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so, you know, again, this process has been been an incredible journey. But again, that does speak to why there's been such a gap in releasing content. Um, you know, a lot of life transition has happened. I don't know who follows me on per- personally on my personal social media, but you can probably notice over the last year and a half, almost there's been a, a significant life change transition, which has been great, which has been healthy. And so um, in order to, you know, to navigate everything going on into balance, you know, we took a step back to really focus on family, really focus on, you know, learning a new job, a new career. And then also uh, for both of us, you know, uh, really trying to be present husbands or, you know, men and and, and partners and, and, partners and, and, and fathers. And so, uh, so thank you, to our Patreons for supporting us. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, man, we, we couldn't do this without you. Um, we, we thank our fans and our friends and our family that support us. And so, man, let's dive into this topic. And, and so... And just so in case anybody's wondering, I have not seen these questions ahead of time. He has not seen them <clears throat> at all. Only thing, I, maybe I sent you the consent form. I didn't read it. But... <laughs> <laughs> So, so I'll, I'll, I'll bypass the preliminary questions because we know your name. Um, we'll get to the organization that you're talking about. Obviously, we know your race and uh, your age. You're 44. 44, that's correct. Hank yeah. Aaron year. Mm-hmm. Yes, 44. Um, so tell me, Cedric, uh, tell me briefly about where you grew up, your family life, friendships, and your general experiences that you remember from your early childhood to like high school or so. All right. So I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, born and raised in, in, in the Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area. And all my family on both sides are spread out between um, Ypsilanti or in Ann Arbor and Detroit. Um, most of my extended family still lives in that area. Yep. Um, so uh, my parents are still there. One of my sisters are there, aunts, uncles, everybody. Michigan State bad. fans? No. <laughs> Ann Arbor. <laughs> 
Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, go blue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was born at the University of Michigan Medical Center. My mom's an alum. She still works at the medical center um, at University of Michigan. And um, yeah, so that's was is where I was was raised to kind of make sure I don't belabor how long um, <clears throat> I could talk about my upbringing and make it a really long story. But for the purposes of your dissertation, um, we started going to an all-white church when I was about six years old. Yeah. Um, prior to that, we had been going to a, a all-black church. Um, from my best recollection, probably more in the charismatic, not full-blown charismatic yeah. vein, um, but definitely the kind of church where the lead pastor was basically a dictator where what he said goes and everybody followed suit, which is part of the reason why I found out much later in life why my parents left that church. Mm. Um, so my memories of it are very few, but they're still vivid. Um, and my parents are still in relationship with some of the people that they know from that church, even though they've been gone from that church for almost 40 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, but my parents left it because the pastor, um, one Sunday, had preached the text talking about Christ is the head of the church and, you know, the, the husband is head over the, the wife and so on and so forth. And um, <clears throat> my dad and my mom both very well read in the scripture and my dad's understanding of the interpretation of that text did not match with the pastor's, which was, this was the pastor's understanding or how he applied it to the congregation. Right. Uh, husbands are over the wives, so the husbands, the wives are to submit to the husbands. But uh, Christ is head over the church, so husbands must submit to Christ. And since I'm the head of this church, the husbands are to submit to my leadership. Right. But if I, if if your husband tells you one thing and I tell you another, you do what I say. Ooh. Right. And so my parents respectfully brought this um, disagreement to his attention. My dad came with different commentaries and different things, and he was basically told uh, either get in line or the door's that way. So my parents chose the door. Yeah. And they, in their search for a new church, they wanted a church that had a good accountability structure um, around the leadership, around right. the pastor. And they wanted their children, myself and my sisters, to be discipled. Yeah. Um, so uh, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was six listening to the Sunday sermon and in my six-year-old brain saying, Jesus sounds pretty cool. Even though I'm tropical-blooded, hell sounds like a little much. <laughs> um, and you got I, scared into Jesus. I, I'm not scared. It just seemed like a better offer. It was a, yeah. Okay, I was a little scared too. I, yeah. mean, I didn't want to go to hell. Yeah. Devil's, again, tropical-blooded, warm, yeah, much, yeah. yes. Devil, freaky, you know, yeah. living on the clouds, cool. Yeah. It's, Strange, no ground under my feet, but yeah. you know it's better than the alternative. Yeah. Um. So yeah, 
Um, my mom was satisfied with my answer of understanding what it was I was asking for when I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. Yeah. And for me, even though my you know views on specifically quote altar calls have changed, in no way do I look at my experience and go, well, it wasn't real or it wasn't authentic. No, it was very real and was a, a catalyst to you know where I am even today. Right. Um, but it's not the end all be all. Let's put right. it that way. Right. Um, that being said, um, it ended up being in a, a predominantly white church, a free Methodist church, which is Wesleyan influence. So very much um, Armenian or free will, um, very evangelistic, yeah. uh, very focused on not only evangelism locally, but missions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got pretty involved in the life of that church. Both my parents served on the elder board within that church. My mom eventually even ended up serving in the regional board for the Southeastern Free Methodist Conference. Um, So when I was later in college with a school that was affiliated with with the Free Methodist Church, my mom actually sat on what I think they refer to as the MEG board where students who were looking to get a degree in ministry, if they were going to get placement within the Free Methodist Conference, they had to sit before this board uh, and be questioned. And so, <laughs> well, that's the irony. <laughs> I had a lot of classmates who came back. They're like, oh yeah, I met your mom at the, you know, my yeah. thing. When I graduated, right, I, I obviously came down yeah. here to Charlotte. Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't as connected to the professors who were direct line into the Free Methodist Church. Gotcha. My, the guy who started the youth ministry program at, Spring Arbor University, uh, Vince Beresford, he had come from California, so he wasn't as gotcha. connected in the Southeastern Conference, but yeah. he was more connected nationally, yeah. right? The point being, my mom was ticked that here I am, the son of somebody who has sat on the regional board, one of yeah. the few people of color yeah. in the denomination that yeah. is actually you know, also seeking has a son who is seeking to go into full-time ministry and I wasn't even on their radar until after I'd already left. Wow. (laughs) Well, that, that opens up a whole other. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So obviously you grew up in a Christian home and environment. What about your, what about your, your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Like what was that racial demographic and everything like? So the school district that I was in was about 80% white, 20% black. So while it was a predominantly white neighborhood, we weren't, quote, the only ones. We right. There were enough of us around that we didn't feel completely, um, <laughs> you know, like some kind of endangered isolated. species or isolated. Um, but it was enough that eventually as we got older, because there were so few of us, this need to prove or show that, yep. that quote, I, when I say I, I'm not speaking about myself, I'm speaking about generally those that I went to school with who were of color had to prove how black we were. Mm, mm. And of okay. course, if you've done the math with me being 44, yep. my teenage adolescent years were in the 90s. Okay. 
Which, yeah. I mean, the whole cultural stuff that was going on, I can get into that later. All that to say, like I had friends in the neighborhood who lived in a cul-de-sac, middle class. My dad worked for a yeah. Ford Motor Company when you could yeah. easily support a family on that salary. My yeah. mom uh, is a, was a administrative nurse yeah. and tracking on up through the ranks to where now she is pretty much as far as she could there's only one spot that she could go further. Yeah. Wow. And she passed on that spot 20 years ago. Wow. Right. Wow. Because she's like, I actually want to have a life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. Right. So what about your, like, how, how did that shape your friendships? Were they predominantly white? Yeah. Predominantly I mean, white? most okay. of them, most of them were white. From going to a predominantly white school, yeah. there's, the thing was with only 20% black kids, most of your classes, there's only maybe in a class of 25, there's only three of you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it wasn't really until middle school or high school that we actually started to cross paths with each other more often. Yeah. Or we could sit at any table we wanted to in the cafeteria instead of having to sit at a table with our class. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Right? Okay. And also, I mean... It was mostly working class to moving into class. that middle class. Not quite upper middle, yeah, okay. but definitely middle to working class. Not poverty, not like yeah. low class, but work, definitely working class. Working class by the North standards, Southern standards. Um, Cause, I, cause I, I do think there's a... There's a slight difference because yeah. a lot of, to my understanding, in the South... With it being still very rural, yeah. it was more work in the ground. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the north, yeah. it was more industrial, yeah, so it was yeah. working in factories. In factories, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because the factories here were few and far in between, and then eventually they were the first to shut down. Right. Because obviously up north they they were producing more. It to my limited knowledge and research. Yeah, I mean the ones up north actually started to shut down because. It was easier to create, at least with auto industry, it was easier to produce some of their stuff, I guess, in, or, you know, it was, the labor was cheaper south, but yeah. south being out of the country. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So when you transitioned from college, walk me through that journey. What was your first job out of college? And mm -hmm. that, how did that church look? Yeah. And then how did you eventually land at, um, you know, church at Michigan? Church at Michigan. <laughs> wow. Wow. Or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. So it can't be Michigan because you moved south. So right. Let's say right. Church at Wilmington. Right. Oh, gosh. Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, so my first job out of college uh, was at a church that has um, pretty rich, <laughs> and I'm using air quotes, yeah. history uh, in Charlotte, in the Carolinas in particular, okay. um, affiliated with the with the Graham family, Billy gotcha. Graham family, some gotcha. ties, not like solid hardcore ties. It's not but, like your seminary, like he founded your seminary or anything. Right. You're getting but, your doctorate, but when I was there, people liked to call attention to that, that was the their, ties. That was their uh, to the to the grams. That was part of the clout that they yeah. they liked to claim. Yeah. Um, but had been around in Charlotte dating back to the late nineteen twenties. Um, 
but was a hub of evangelicalism in the 70s. Yeah. Moving on through to the 90s. Uh, the congregation was was big. The building was very ornate. <laughs> so those in Charlotte know exactly which church I'm talking yeah. about. Um, I don't mind saying it because, okay. yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say anything that's going to have them coming after me in any way. Yeah. Uh, Calvary Church. Yeah. yeah. So... Off Ray Road. Off Ray Road, yeah. Intersects with 51. Mm-hmm. Highway 51 and Ray Road. So uh, I went there to be a middle school youth pastor. And um, church of almost 3,000 when I arrived. Okay. So y'all were competing with uh, Northside and Hickory Grove. Kind of, sort of. Those would have been, those. if I'm thinking correctly, historically, those were like the... Bigger prestige. Those would be the two churches even to this day that are large in size that are really uh, have drawn a line in the dirt to be like we are the traditional church offering. Yeah, in Charlotte. In Charlotte. You know, while everybody's trying to be more relevant, we're going to, we're going to really. Right. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to stay the way we are. Yeah. Uh, which ironically is part of the reason why um, I left, and yeah. I was only there for 14 months. Okay. Um, the the senior pastor at the time, uh, and and the irony being, so I came in, I moved down here August 3rd of 2004, um, because it was the summer and people were still right. finishing up their summer vacations. Like, okay, we're going to introduce you to the congregation on September 12th. 2004. 2004. Right. So just finished ninth grade. Right. So leading up <laughs> to that weekend, it was discovered that the senior pastor, due to being burnt out, had been plagiarizing messages. That hmm. he'd been doing it for about two years. Right. Some of them were parts or segments. Some sermons were like the whole thing. Wow. And so they had to deal with that. He ended up. Uh, resigning, and so instead of announcing, "Hey, you know, we got this new issue. middle school you know youth pastor," a, you know that's not an issue now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like they put people publish sermons on uh, logos. Yeah, I believe it. You download, make money even, now. Even some of those commentaries I have, like mm-hmm. they full out sermons. But anyways, yeah. So, um, well, you know, it's like my youth ministry professor used to say: steal everything and always give credit. Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's what it comes down yeah. to. It's yeah, not about not borrowing yeah. someone else's material. It's about yeah. don't do it without giving them credit. Yeah. So yeah. all that being said, um, where was I? Uh, he was supposed to announce you. They're supposed Sunday, to announce me on September twelfth. It got debunked. It got the you know put to the back burner literally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where not only did they not announce me that weekend, they never actually announced that I had been hired and come on as the middle school youth pastor. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So like there were people in the congregation with it being 3000 people who had no idea who I was, but because I had sang special music on two different occasions, they thought I was some hired vocalist that came in over Christmas weekend to sing this Brooklyn Tab duet. That's hilarious. Which is also the weekend that Emma saw me for the first time. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it worked out. It worked it, out. It worked, it worked out. out. So so after you left 
Calvary, where did you land? So then I landed at a church that was uh, four miles down the road, uh, a church that has since changed its its name. Uh, church at Charlotte was there for 10 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. And so what what first attracted you to church at Charlotte? Or was it just a byproduct? Like byproduct of you. I mean, well, the whole plagiarism thing really opened the door for. So we had eighteen elders. Yeah, but within that eldership, five really held power. Yeah, that makes yeah, that makes sense. And so, and it wasn't necessarily that all five of them were still on the elder board. Some of them had rotated off, but still had that power. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, they were able to do more yeah. when they weren't on the board than when they were on. Yeah. All that being said is you had people who did not like within that group the direction that that pastor had been taking the church. They felt like he was taking it too progressive. Mm. But they there wasn't anything they could do. I mean, hiring a black guy to predominantly white church is very progressive. Well... <laughs> Yeah, progressive in in in, in expression, in expression, in yeah, expression. Yeah. Um, because you know if we were well assimilated, it was just a, you know again the kind of thing. Let's see, look, we're diverse. Yeah, which which there were probably others on staff that were right. There are a few, yeah. but I I fit that bill. Yeah, I fit yeah. that bill at that time. I'm not ashamed to say it. That's where I was at the time. Yeah. Um, but all that being said, uh, basically that gave them what they wanted because the constitution of the church hadn't been updated since the 30s, which said when there is only three elders and one pastor, as opposed to the 18 and 18 that it was in 2004, that in the event that the senior pastor is gone or fired or whatever, the elder board is acting senior pastor. Mm. So basically... They went from an accountability to being able to be not only hold accountability, but also call the shots. Gotcha. And that's when they were able to go back to being, quote, the most traditional church in Charlotte. Yep. Now, that's a total preference issue. Yep. Wouldn't be my preference, but that was theirs. That wasn't the issue. The issue was is that they had pastors who had come on as a part of the old senior pastor's vision. So yeah. ethically, what should have happened is them like saying, hey, this is the direction that we want to take the church. We know that many of you didn't sign up for that. If you want to continue on, if you're for this vision, by all means, let's go, let's make it happen. Yeah. But if you would rather not be a part of the direction we're headed, then can we come to some kind of agreement where we you know, give you a, a, a runway, so to speak, to transition and find right. another place that also gives us time to find a replacement for right. you? They didn't do that. Instead, they just patted us on the back and said, hey, we got your back. And then meanwhile, they allowed for a environment to grow where um, basically it was open season on pastors. Mm. Anyone could accuse us of bad ministry and no one had our back. Mm. And so uh, the executive pastor got picked off, the worship for lead and young adults got picked off. And then the senior high pastor got picked off. And that's when I was like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. But because the senior senior high youth pastor was gone, I said, I need to wait. Because now is not, I don't feel the right time because right. these kids are going yeah, through a kids, lot, yeah, yeah. having just lost their high school pastor. Little did I know 
that um, the women's director, who I affectionately still to this day refer to as my Charlotte mom, because when yeah. I came there, she's like, you're the same age as my daughter. And if my daughter moved on another side of the country, I would want someone to look out after them. So I'm going to do that for you. And then when she actually met my parents, they hit it off. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. Yeah. So she was very well, Her one of her best friends was the women's director at Church at Charlotte. And she was gotcha. very well respected by the senior leadership at Church at Charlotte gotcha. and knew that they were looking to hire a new middle school youth yeah. pastor. And she said, go get him. Yeah. And then another person I found out later who had been the missions pastor at uh, Calvary interviewed for outreach position at um, Church at Charlotte, didn't end up taking the job. But while they were there, his wife said, you guys need to go get Cedric. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So when you got to Church at Charlotte, like what did you, what did you enjoy initially about the church and everything? I mean, for the most part, everything. Yeah. For everything. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have stayed there 10 years if I didn't enjoy the vast majority of the time that I was there. Um, I really bonded with the pastoral staff there. Um, I really, um, um, the, the, the first high school pastor that I worked with, even though I only worked with him for nine months, he just showed me a lot of respect. Yeah. He gave me a lot of room to grow and flourish. Yeah. He didn't like try to hold me back. Yeah. He wasn't, he didn't present in a way that um, would lead me to feel like he was in some ways threatened by areas that I was strong in that he, yeah. no, it wasn't, wasn't that he was weak and he wasn't maybe as strong in right. those areas, despite the fact that I was younger and a little bit more inexperienced. Right. He saw those things as a strength in like, hey, you know, yeah, let's. And so that was a really good, good partnership right there. But um, I felt like I got to know different people and people really made um, space for me to come into that community and be a part of that community. Yeah, that's real good. Yeah. So, I mean, did you have, did you have any frustrations? And if so, like, what were your frustrations? So... The thing that you would need to know about me, which is something that I've only really awakened to myself in the last five years, and I'm going to relate it to the Enneagram because that's been a really good uh, tool for me. The demonicogram is what it's being called. The what? Demonicogram. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, there's some people that go way too far with it, but... Uh Um, I, I see it more as a tool of not saying this is who I am, but here's a tool to be able to kind of heal and maybe undo unhealthy patterns. Right, right, which is the intent of it. Right. Yep. So I'm a nine mm-hmm. on the Enneagram, and a tendency of the nine is that uh, I can be asleep to my own feelings, Mm -hmm. and emotions, Mm -hmm. in particular those around anger, Mm. Okay, right? So it actually took me years, and it wasn't until after leaving that I could look back and say, you know what? Not only am I not happy about how that went, like I can actually say to myself for the first time, I'm really didn't like the way that went, how that was handled, or I'm actually angry about that. But part of it too was saying, 
I'm disappointed with myself that I didn't, that I was so disconnected from my own feelings. Yeah. Um, part of it was wanting to um, not rock the boat. Right. Another part of it was I was just unaware of how I really felt. But looking back and reflecting, in some ways, it kept me safe for the time being. Right. And so let me, let me pause and give a preface of what I conclude in my dissertation and what I'm seeking to prove is that when black leaders work in predominantly white organizations, they demonstrate signs of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm-hmm. One of the signs, uh, well, I'll give you three signs. So one's uh, ever-present anger, mm-hmm. vacant, vacant esteem, and racist socialization. So you're, you're dealing with this, this, this rage, this anger because of X factor, whether it's being passed up on promotions or opportunities, whether it's, you know, situations, mm-hmm. you're being accused of certain things, yeah. so forth and so on. Vacant esteem comes because you start to believe the things that are said about you even though you inwardly don't believe that they're true, but it 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 impacts your self-esteem and self-worth yeah. tremendously. Racist socialization kind of speaks to your Calvary experience of, I assimilate it like this, it is what it is. I believe these ideologies. And that can either be conscious or subconscious. And so, mm-hmm. so you, you're proving that, the, that this is a possibility. And like you, you've already alluded to, there are individuals that, were in particularly Calvary that assimilated to racist socialization, um, which doesn't sound as um, abrasive. It's not as abrasive as you may be envisioning it as I say it. Oh, no, it's but way more it's, subtle it's, than it's, that. It's a, it's a, it's a, if you look into post-traumatic slave syndrome, I, I'm proving that these three things can manifest when black leaders are working within predominantly white organizations. And, and, and I equate it to the, the levels of consciousness. Either you're awakened to, um, you're saying it now, looking back, that you could see signs of anger. But in the moment, you don't necessarily see that because you're, you're, you're addressing the subconscious, mm-hmm. right? The subconscious uh, nature of your environment and situation versus now being conscious and aware of your racialized identity and who you are you're able to say, oh, no, that's what it was. And mm-hmm. so you've, and it shows that you've dealt with the trauma to be able to name it. So, yeah. So again, I want, I want, I felt like I didn't preface what I was trying to demonstrate here mm-hmm. uh, with the dissertation. But again, this was a perfect yeah. explanation to show you what Cedric was, uh, how trauma, intergenerational trauma was manifested right. for Cedric through post traumatic slave syndrome through intergenerational trauma that was transmitted. Right, which is the whole crux. When you're talking about bylaws and constitutions not being changed since 1930, mm-hmm. <laughs> what does that tell me? Like, so, so we haven't deconstructed Jim Crow and how it impacted how we wrote the constitution of this church, which shows me that you didn't deconstruct, you know, Reconstruction period and Emancipation mm-hmm. Proclamation. So you see what I'm saying? So this is how trauma is transmitted. Yeah, and this these are the effects of. Uh, intergenerational trauma and how it impacts black leaders working within predominantly white organizations. Thank you for proving my dissertation. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it because it's very nuanced and complicated. But but again, it is, I do think now in hindsight, being aware, my hope is to put language to what the actual experiences are for leaders. Yeah, well, and I can start naming reflectively what some of those things are. Right. So, right. 
Well, I mean, you, you're welcome if, to. If uh, you want to resume. Yeah, yeah. Def- no, let's definitely keep going. But like, you paused it, didn't you? Did you? No, not? no, no. It's just, it's, it's still going. It's just, oh. it's just looping. Well, let, me sh- let me shut up. All no, right, you're, all right. you're good. <laughs> so, so like, talk, talk more about the emotions that you were feeling, or you, you maybe you were inwardly wrestling with versus like your like hindsight perspective now looking yeah. back. So, I would say early on, it would be navigating what I would now refer to as microaggressions. That being said, yeah. microaggressions, as Ibram Kendi would say, it's racism. Like, there's no such thing actually as microaggressions. They're just the things that we actually just choose right. not to go to battle over. It's like right. a marriage. Right. You got to pick your battles. Right. It's not that those aggressions are micro. We just choose not to fight. Are they conscious battles. or unconscious or both? Both. Because they I, only I become yeah. subconscious through habit. Right. Or just like in a marriage, yeah. you yeah. start choosing your battles without actually spending a lot of time actually intentionally thinking, am I going to fight this battle? Am I not going to fight this battle? Is it worth it? Yeah. No, you start to instinctually, nope, yes, nope, yeah. nope, nope, nope. Okay, time out, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. For example, the earliest one, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, so it's not something I haven't told before, but we were on the fall retreat, and I'll tell a more abbreviated version of it, and this was on my first year on staff. We're driving down to Isle Palms, South Carolina. Uh um, Near Charleston. Near Charleston, and we're driving through Greenville or Columbia. It's lunchtime. We stop somewhere for eat, Columbia, and... uh, um, deference was shown to uh, the, the the ladies on staff. Is there anywhere you want to go to eat? One of them said, oh, I've heard about this great barbecue place that apparently is, <laughs> we saw the billboard for uh-huh. Oh, this great barbecue place. I heard the barbecue's really good. I'd really uh-huh. love to go there. It's called Maurice's. Another uh-huh. one of the guys who was on staff had been there even shorter time than me said, Maurice's? Really going to go to Maurice's? Uh-huh. Cedric, you all right with Maurice's? Which at the time, I'm thinking... He thinks just because I'm from the North, I don't like barbecue or I might have something against barbecue. Right. I'm like, black folks been on came up from the South one generation ago. Like, we eat grits and all this stuff that y'all think the Northerners don't know about. <laughs> we took that stuff with us when we uh-huh. fled for our lives, just right? Not, just not chitlins. Right. Well, no, chitlins too. <laughs> chitlins too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, I, he didn't say that, hey, Maurice's has a litigated, a literally litigated to the Supreme Court of the United yeah. States history of open racism and a desire to racially discriminate against the patronage coming into their restaurant to that even into this day in 2006 at the time, mm. which they've since changed it in the last like four years, mm. they I'm pretty sure flew a Confederate flag outside in the parking lot. Yeah. They, when you first walk in the hallway, it is nothing but book tables with nothing but Confederate uh, 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 um, apologists, uh, um, propaganda. Right. Why slavery was good for the Negro and, you know, all these different books 
pushing the lost cause propaganda and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. So every one of us is like, oh my gosh, yeah. we've come to the wrong place. Now you would think we would leave. But yeah. Did we leave? No. No, we did not. And the poet question was posed to me, Cedric, what do you want to do? Yeah. At the time, with, again, not thinking about it because I've been in predominantly white spaces my whole life. Yeah. So I had to navigate things similar to this, but not the same level in the past. But I'm also on this new staff where I'm trying to make a good impression and fit in and all this stuff. And I'm also aware. And again, nine on the Enneagram, put myself in the shoes of other people and sometimes prioritize other people's feelings or what I perceive they're perceiving, their feelings and desires above my own, not only feelings, but safety. Right. And so my thinking is, is, well, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Where else are we going to go eat? Everybody's hungry. I don't want to be the one that has to cause everybody to have to load back up in the cars and go look for somewhere else to eat. Right. If I had that situation all do all over again, I would have been like, I'm not eating here. Right. Not only that, but the fact that you would actually ask me, right. young guy on staff, whether or not I'm okay eating here, I should be asking you, no, are you okay eating here? Mm. Are you okay using the church's money to pay for a meal for the staff right. to this place? Right, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be asking me. It right. shouldn't even be a question. You should be saying, no, as the leader, I'm not gonna, we're not eating here. We're gonna go right. somewhere else. So looking back for me, like I've had to, one, in a way forgive people for not doing what I needed them to do in that moment, but also, and more importantly, forgive myself right. for not, for being so detached from my own feelings right. and desire that's, that's and not prioritizing my own dignity. Vacant, vacant esteem. Right. Which, which nines, I, I would say, lean towards that. Oh. We talk about putting the feelings and emotions of other people at the expense of your own psychological and sometimes literal physical safety. safety. Yeah. So, right. And so in a lot um, of ways, while I'm disappointed <clears throat> in those leaders retroactively, which for the record, you know, saw one of them recently and it was good to see them and, you know, catch up real quickly um, it's not the kind of thing where I'm like, I can never forgive you for this kind right. of thing. Um, but more so, I had to forgive myself. Right, right. Even more so, I had to forgive myself. Yeah. And like almost do this exercise where the present me goes back to myself in those moments and say, it's okay. You didn't know. You didn't better. know. You didn't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah.